As we find ourselves uh, on a Resurrection Sunday this morning of Easter, and we begin to transition into an Easter season, we've come, for those of us that have been at Mosaic and that have followed the church calendar uh, this season, or, or even if you haven't, uh, welcome. You've been journeying through Lent, whether you've knew, known it or not, I guess. Uh, these things find their way to us. We at Mosaic have been walking through this season for six weeks, intentionally taking ourselves and placing ourselves in front of Christ and his crucifixion and what it means that it is needed and necessary that we wander in the wilderness, in the desert places, and in these seasons and places where we acknowledge our brokenness, our futility, our own finiteness, if you will. This season of journeying leads to this moment, and now what you're going to be invited into as a people, as the community of God and followers of Jesus Christ, is you're invited now into not just one day of celebrating, but the church collectively for the next seven weeks will be invited into a season of celebrating, one that where we continue to try to sustain and to hold and to continually acknowledge the good gift of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. This isn't always the most simple task. It's hard sometimes to come out of it. Just metaphorically, uh, you understand this reality. Literally, you understand that sometimes it is hard. Any of you that have ever uh, attempted to go on some sort of diet or, or restriction of some sort, you find yourself oftentimes after doing it for a sustained amount of time difficult to kind of step back into it. If you've ever dealt with an injury or you've had to uh, rehab a knee or a shoulder or an elbow, oftentimes, even though it is healed and it is whole, you find yourself hesitant to use it, to pick it back up. This will be the case for many of us as we enter into this worship season. This is the case for the women as they approach the tomb. They come not knowing, even after they hear the news that he is risen, they were joyful and yet afraid. How much hope do you allow yourself to have? How much ability do you have to kind of give yourself over to what might possibly be true? This is what Kyle was talking about. This fact that we as a culture and a society, we give ourselves and are more prone to cynicism and kind of this standoffish way of looking at the world and sort of going, and that can't really be true. We're prone to immediately assume that if something is too good to be true or feels too good to be true, it probably is. We assume that the other shoe is always going to drop. And yet, as the people of God, for the next uh, number of days, this season, we collectively come in and say that this is actually as good as it seems. That Jesus Christ did the thing that he said he was going to do, and yet for many of us we'll find that difficult and hard. The way that we left together, if you were worshiping with us at Mosaic on Good Friday, as we ended the service, we ended in silence unresolved. We ended the space kind of awkwardly. No one really knew whether they were supposed to talk or just walk out the door. And for many of us, as you see in these women and in our own lives, as you enter back into joy and celebration, as you find hope, as you think maybe just possibly this thing could change, that there's something better than the experience you've had up until this point in your life, in that moment, you might find the same awkwardness, the same hesitation, do I really believe this? Do I really want to give myself to this? Is this actually true? And we come with tension and reservation. You see, here's the realities of what Lent taught us. And what we all know quite well is that death 
is a thing. Brokenness is a thing. Disappointment is a thing. We say it all the time. You don't have to look out and around much if you've lived for very long and understand that you don't always get the things that you want. Life doesn't go the way that you want. Grief, brokenness, shame, we are all well acquainted with it. But hope, joy, in the face of grief, on that line, we get it in the easy ways. We get it in the subtle ways. But when you are looking for hope where it seems hope can't be found, when you're looking for joy in the place, in the moment that seems the darkest, that is what requires faith. It's easy to hope and to find joy in the moments where you have everything that you want. When your life is put together, everything's gone the way that you think it's supposed to go. But there are some things that reason and logic and just good old-fashioned sense doesn't really account for. Reason and logic will never be able to explain to us why love would come and die. Only faith can do that. Only faith can invite you into this moment where you are sitting where death and life meet. And the nuance between the two is uh, oftentimes mixed. And this is what you see at this tomb. This is what you see in the moment of resurrection. You see these women thinking, hoping, maybe all that Jesus had said was true. Thursday night at our Bible study, we read the Maundy Thursday passage, the Passovers and those type, the language around the foot washing service, all of this. And we said that there's this moment where we see Peter in his denial of Jesus publicly. And we always think that like, oh, he's like kind of protecting himself. He's kind of doing this thing where he's imagining, or we oftentimes imagine where he's ashamed that he's maybe in this moment where he finds some sort of like, I just don't want to, I don't want to get caught up in this. I don't want to be in this trial. I don't want to do all of this. But that night we discussed and we talked that maybe there's an element there where Peter in that moment is frustrated with Jesus. He's mad. He's angry. He's given his whole life, and he thought that there was a promise, this thing that was supposed to happen, that he was the Messiah, and yet in that moment, it feels like it was all for naught. It was gone. And all the other disciples, except a few women that followed him, as the text tells us, they, they all kind of go back to doing their own thing. They're with Peter. They kind of just abandon him. They give up. They say, well, that didn't work out. That wasn't what we thought it was going to be. That, he wasn't who we thought he was. Because he did it in such a way that we didn't see coming. But in his death and in his burial, in the moments of darkness and silence, of grief and pain, where things seemed the most lost and hopeless, we see that Jesus is actually doing the very thing that he intended to do. He's reversing what it means to be human and what the experience of humanity's life on this earth is. He's reversing the curse that humanity brought upon itself. He's taking on the wrath that humanity has given to itself. He's dealing with the punishment that humanity has dealt upon itself. In the cross, Jesus is being obedient to the Father in a way that humanity had failed to do so up until that point. He's undoing what Adam and Eve could not do or did not do. And in that obedience and in that faith, he displays something. 
He, un- he reveals himself. He's vulnerable and naked on a tree when Adam and Eve hid. He's reversing these things. When Adam and Eve were told that they now no longer could be in paradise and humanity was forced east of Eden with them, Jesus says in that moment and in that time that today he will be in paradise as he invites the thief with him. There are these moments that we know the pain and the toil, the futility of working the land and the relationships that we are cursed by at times that can never be just the way we want. And these are the realities of the curse of sin and death. And there's a sense deep within us that we know that that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And on the cross, Jesus wears a crown of thorns and he ushers in a new way of being that undoes this curse. There, that's where it happens. In darkness and in silence, pain, suffering, And most of the disciples, except a few, assume it's all loss. They can't see the hope. They can't see the joy in the darkness and in the pain. And we, for six weeks, as a people, have walked through the season of Lent, facing our own pain, facing our own brokenness, acknowledging our own need for salvation and for a Savior. And for many of us, I think that what we hope and what we think that the Christian promise is, is that if we just follow Jesus and we name it, that it'll just all sort of like magically and miraculously go away. That we just move on from it. Now that we've named it and we've offered it to the Lord, we can move on, right? But that's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is that it is in the pain the suffering, the darkness. There is where life begins to form and to meet. It's in the soil where death and life are interacting. I love the imagery in John's account of the gospel. We read from Matthew, basically uh, mostly the same, except John adds a little detail of when they meet Jesus, that Jesus is a gardener, or they mistake him for the gardener. Gardeners have this uh, nuanced sense of understanding of what is dead and alive. Oftentimes things that we think are dead, they think are, uh, you know, totally fine and normal. And oftentimes that we think that might be alive, uh, oftentimes are not doing quite so well as we think they are. They have a sense of knowing what is coming and what is needed in the midst of that. And in the soil where things go to die, they're acquainted well with the imagery and the understanding that that is where life can spring forth. Buried, hidden, away where you think that maybe it's supposed to happen a lot faster than it was appearing to do. Gardeners get this. It's a game of patience. It's a game of time. That life, as it springs forth, it happens slowly, moment by moment, over a long course, a long season. And things come and they go and it changes, and yet they know that there's a way you tend to it and you cultivate it. And Jesus is seen in this way, in that moment. I don't think that's a mistake. But that's what he was seen as. As a gardener. Tending to the soil. Cultivating a life where death and life overlap. Because that's the life we now live in response to the resurrection. We live a life where there is this overlap. We're acquainted with and we know the realities of death and of brokenness. And yet we cling tightly to the promises 
of hope, into joy, into the goodness of salvation, that Jesus is the King. Last week, Kyle, uh, so well, uh, he said this. I loved it. I texted him. I was like, dude, was that your line or did you read that somewhere? He's like, it was mine. I was afraid it was a little too cheesy. But he talked about how we try to put all these different hats on Jesus. In our brokenness, in our search for meaning and life and joy and hope, we like the imagery of gardener Jesus. That's real cool, especially on today. We like these different images, these different ways of thinking and being that Jesus kind of fits our, what we think life should look like. And yet, we see that that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just wear hats that we tell him to wear or be just what we think he should be. All of the reversal that happens on the cross on Good Friday cannot be good news unless he proves that he has all authority over death and life, man, over all of the universe, and is raised from the grave. That's right, Jameson, yes. Somebody gets it. Good. There's a moment where that has to be true. Because here's the thing. You and I are acquainted with death and suffering. You and I know it well. And lots of people die. Everybody dies. We're all going to die. I hate to break it to you. It's the realities. We will. And yet there's a promise in it, right? Lots of people have died. Lots of people were crucified. Lots of people claim to be the Messiah. Lots of people have started religious movements. Lots of people have had followings. Lots of people have created groups of people that gave their way to their practices and to their lives and to their ideas. But yet for some reason, this man, Jesus, his following, his life, his journey, his teachings have sustained in a different kind of way. They've mattered in a different kind of way. And in a word, I would sum it up as resurrection. It changed everything. It made his death and his dying different. And the promise of the scriptures, of what we see in the New Testament, is that through the power of his Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, was given to us, his people. We cultivate it here amongst one another. We pray blessings over children so that that Spirit can do something. And in that, what it is promised is that the deaths and the grief that you experience can be like his. It does not mean you avoid them. It does not mean that you will go without them. In fact, it means that you will face them in ways that you did not have the courage and bravery to face them before. Christianity gets accused of being a religion that avoids pain, that avoids kind of the realities of life. And there's a way of practicing Christianity that can do that. But when you're honest and practicing the way of Jesus and giving yourself this, there's a way in which you learn that you have to face grief and come to grips with it to be able to celebrate. If you do not name and walk into the darkness, the light does not mean anything. If you don't know the grief, you will not know the joy. And this is what Jesus is begging us to experience and to know. Two weeks ago, we preached on the passage of the death of Lazarus. And Mary Magdalene was one of the women that comes to Jesus, grieving, frustrated, angry. 
And she looks at Jesus and she says, if you would have been here. Her sister earlier in the passage we know says, if you would have been here, but I believe in you still. And Mary stays there. If you would have been here, you could have done something. And he looks at Mary and he says, take me to where you've laid him. And now we know in this passage, when Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb, we know that she doesn't have full faith that there's a resurrection on hand. We, even when the angel says it, she's kind of like, well, I don't know, like I'm excited, but I, I can't quite give myself to this. Can it actually be? But I would have to think on that Sunday morning, holy conjecture here with me. We don't get a lot of details of what they were feeling, but in my human mind, I would have to think that passage, jumping to here, that something in the back of her mind was going, I have to go to where they laid him. That's what he told me to do. And he promised me when he told me to do that, that he was the resurrection and the life. And that whoever might believe in him will experience that eternal life, the abundant life, the joyful life. And she says, yeah, 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 I know. And he says, no, 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 no. Now, me, here, in this moment. She saw him do it. And in that grief and in that suffering, that pain, I have to think that there was some way deep within her that the only thing that she could do was to go to where they laid him. Yes, it was to do ritual, ritual burial things that Jewish people do. Yes, there were other reasons she goes to pay homage, whatever you might be, that are the human grief kind of on this side. But I have to think in the back of her mind, there was something of her hoping, praying, just imagining that maybe if she went there, there would be life and life abundant. That if she went to the place to where the grief was, if she faced the deepest pain and sorrow she had ever experienced in her life, the one that had allowed her whole life to be turned upside down and then ended, if she went there, that there might be joy, that there might be hope, that there might be something else on the other end. And I think that's the beautiful invitation of resurrection for us here in this space now as we think about all that we've walked through in our acquaintedness with grief and sorrow frustration. When you think about whether you're 30, 40, 50, or beyond, we won't name all the grandparents' ages because we love you guys. As you have experienced this, I do this. There are things about me in my life that I say, well, that's just, I guess that's the plight I live. That's my frustration. That's my grief. There are sorrows, burdens, wounds I've carried, and they will always be with me. But if there is a way in which we can face that grief and go into it, I have to think like Mary. There is a possibility in a way in which we go there and we go to the place that it's laid and to it's buried, that there is life that is dying to team up. That there's a joy that can be found there that is beyond all human recognition and understanding, all possibilities of what we could ever dream or imagine. And this is what Mary finds. She finds this moment joyful and excited and yet fearful. And for many of us, that'll be the case. We won't face these moments and simply move on as quickly as we can. We won't just go, okay, yeah, 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 I'll go face it. I'll deal with it. I'll, I'll put myself in front of it, and then it'll just all disappear, right? This will take time. This will be something that is a process that we do for all of our lives, Sometimes it, the Lord, for whatever reason, takes things away like that, and some of us have experienced that. For others, there are things that we wrestle with 
and hold on to for all of our lives until that moment we see Christ fully. But here's what I think is interesting. Mary goes to the tomb, maybe joyful, maybe not, maybe expecting, obviously in grief, looking. The angel says, go find Jesus. Go look for Jesus. He's not here. Go look for the one that was crucified. And yet she doesn't have to look for him. He finds her in the garden. And throughout the rest of the New Testament scriptures, what we will see is in their grief and in their doubt and in their struggling, Christ finds his disciples. Christ finds us. And so there's this way in which our life must be given to him. Judah, earlier this week, they had an Easter egg hunt at his school. And he kept saying that they were having an Easter hunt, not an Easter egg hunt or an egg hunt. And I said, well, buddy, it's not really an Easter hunt. I said, Easter, you don't really have to go looking for it. And Jameson, in the car next to me, says, or in the back seat next to Judah, says, yeah, Judah, like, because Jesus is raised from the tomb, it's kind of like Easter hunts us. And I was like, you have no idea what you just said, son. But I said, that will be used on Sunday in my sermon. But I think it's true. In our grief, and our sorrow, if we're willing to place ourselves there, we don't have to go looking and finding and searching. Christ will meet us there. He will find us in our sorrow. He will find us in our grief. And that's the invitation of the table, is that you come to a table that's set before you, not a table that you have to prepare, not a table that you have to somehow manufacture or conjure up, not a table that is required of your hard work, but a table that is placed before you because of what Christ has done and Christ's desire to find you and to meet with you and to bring hope and life and joy in all of its abundance and nuances and its difficulties. And so as the band is going to come back up, they're going to play another song. And we're going to invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup. And you can look around and realize the logistics of this might be a little confusing. So we're going to take a pause in our regularly scheduled programming to walk through how we could do this. There's a few cups and bread up here. And if you want to make your way this way, you can come out this aisle and go this way and go back. There's two over here. There's also bread and cups over there by the coffee. And so if you want to go that way and kind of work with one another, you may have to go kind of a whole row at a time as is as able. But come this way and then go back in your rows this way. Grab the bread, hold on to it, take the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to those elements. And be reminded of what you hold, the promise that you hold, that is in death there is life, in grief there is joy. There's a promise of the way in which Christ intends to meet you in those places where death and life most overlap, to dig his hands into the soil of our lives, to dig up what is rocky and in the way, to allow us to cultivate something abundant and full and eternal and a life where we experience so much finite and limited availability of what we think joy is supposed to be. Christ comes to offer freely to us hope and excitement. And as we take of these elements and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we're reminded 
but in these moments that something inside of us changes. In the same way that we stand here today and say, if this was just another day, like if we're just kind of getting together to dress up and talk about some things that we think sound really cool or helpful, then like Paul in the scriptures would say, we're the most to be pitied. We're fools. But if this actually really genuinely, as we believe and proclaim this morning, changes something, if we really think that this is the hope and the way, then that means everything. And we give our lives to it. We center everything about us, the way we spend our money, the way we work, the way we go to bed at night, the way we raise our families, the way we do our friendships, the way we believe in whatever it might be that you're walking through. It's all different because of the resurrection. Our whole way of being and keeping time changes. Our rhythms and our routines should change. What we prioritize should change. What we value should change because the resurrection changed everything. And so as the band plays, come, take the bread, take the cup, hold those elements, reflect on what it means that this joy, this hope is for you this morning, now. And that beauty is coming and that you may not feel it, and that it may be a process, and that you may kind of have a little bit of fear and joy simultaneously, and you may not really even know what you're coming to take, that you may not even really understand what it is that you hold in your hands. You may not understand what it is that's actually happening, and yet you come because you want to place yourself in the midst of and in front of this oncoming joy and beauty that Christ offers all freely. So as the band plays, come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.